Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths. And why do entrepreneurs fail to win? My guest today is Professor Gary Polk, a black businessman, CEO, business consultant, university professor, and author. He is here to share what he freely admits is an obsession of his, Why Entrepreneurs Fail to Win. It's a terrific question. His first book, Why Entrepreneurs Fail to Win, is widely used as a textbook in college entrepreneurship entrepreneurship programs. And his recent book, Why Black and Brown Entrepreneurs Fail to Win, which is on my desk as we speak, by the way, published just recently in December 2020. I have a galley version of it. Um, It's intended for entrepreneurs and those who want to be entrepreneurs. So when asked how black and brown entrepreneurs are different, Gary Polk cited cultural differences that get in the way the self-doubt that holds them back, access to capital, not realizing the need to, to establish a strong network before needing it, not after you need it, not knowing their why, and not viewing entrepreneurship as a team sport. I think that one's pretty interesting. I'm going to ask about that one. He's also a proponent of social entrepreneurship and will launch the Polk Institute of Social Entrepreneurship next month, January 15th, 2021. And we're going to talk about what that is, social entrepreneurship, during the course of the conversation. Gary, welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. It's good to have you here. Good morning, Denise. I'm glad to be here. Well, we have had a couple of really interesting chats. So I'm, and I have your book. I have um, a galley version of it because it's it just published, and I don't have the 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 published book, but I don't need it because I've got this one, and it's a terrific book. So let's talk about why this is so fascinating to you because you know I mentioned it at the top of the show. Why why is this an obsession of yours? Well, that's a good, great question. I'm glad you asked. Um, It really started when I first started teaching uh, at the university level at Cal State Northridge back in uh, 1991, and I was part of something called the Minority Business Program. They wanted to bring more black and Latinos to Cal State Northridge in their business program, and they asked me to teach a class. And I never thought about teaching college before, but I had been a banker. So I said, well, how can I establish myself as a college professor? And I realized that I would establish myself, I've uh, read a lot of business plans. So I would teach my students how to write a business plan. And I would put the emphasis on financial because I was a banker. And I told them that the most important part of any business plan is a financial plan. So here we are 29 years later, and I'm writing a book, Why Black and Brown Entrepreneurs Fail to Win. And so we're really excited about this because it's the second, actually, of three books. So the first book, 2019, Why Entrepreneurs Failed to Win was a macro view, and I wrote it as if it was my first book, as as if it would be my last book, so I just poured everything into it, and it turned out to be fun, and I got a lot of good feedback from my students, and uh, some uh, friends of mine were talking, we said, well, maybe we should do another book and focus on black and brown, and so it took a little longer than we thought. We started in February 2019. And then we didn't get it done until December 2020. But here we are, and now it's ready, and uh, we're excited about that. It's a great book. I mean, both of them are. I've read enough of the first one to understand where you were going with the second one. And you talk about capitalism. You talk about you talk about a lot. I'm not going to interrupt you too, too much because I really want you to share. All right, I'm going to try not to interrupt you too, too much because I want <laughs> okay. you to share, you know, your story and why this is so important to you. Because listen, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a solopreneur. And I kick myself in the fanny pretty regularly because, you know, there's things that I should be doing. I'm not always doing them. And I go to bed and go, God, darn it, and back to my computer to go make myself a note. So mm. we we make mistakes, all of us, no matter what we're doing, no matter 
how successful the world may view us, we we can fail all by ourselves if we're not paying, you know, really good attention. And I think that's what the premise of your book is. You need to pay attention. You need to actually work at winning. Is that correct? Absolutely. And part of working at winning, though, is failure. So if you understand baseball, if you understand baseball and you uh, know that batting, no one bats 800. We just paid Mookie Best $400 million for our Dodgers, and he still bats 300. That means he got three hits out of 10. So really, baseball is a failure sport, and entrepreneurship is a failure sport in many ways. But the difference is that we don't want to quit. So my books are written really as empowerment. It's not self-help per se, but it's empowerment in that you can do it. Will it be easy? No. But if you understand capitalism, and capitalism, by the way, was outlined by a guy named Adam Smith in 1776. He wrote a book called Wealth of Nations, and it outlined capitalism. And it's amazing because if you look at America, the greatness to our economy is our small business system. And so whenever I do a webinar on entrepreneurship, I like to start off with a question. What does Elon Musk, um, Steve uh, Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, Wally Amos, Joy Mangano, what do they all have in common? They all started small. So every business starts small. And in reality, small business in our U.S. economy brings more jobs and innovation. Believe it or not, small business employs more people than big corporate America. We always talk about Fortune 500. But the problem, when you get to the Fortune 500 level, you're not very innovative anymore. They need small companies to be innovative and come up with new ideas and be able to turn and do what's called a pivot. So small business is very important to our economic system. And I consider myself a capitalist. Uh, I believe in capitalism. I think it leads to a higher standard of living. But as a baby boomer, I was taught that the, uh, the business of business is profit, and it was all about profit. So don't worry about the globe. It's infinite, infinite so don't worry about it. Don't worry about people. Just make a profit, make a profit over to taking care of the planet or people. And then in 2017, I stumbled upon this concept called the triple bottom line, people, planet, profit. And I bought into that 100% because it is about profit. But at the same time, we have to go for and understand that our planet is finite. It is limited resources. We just can't keep dumping plastic bottles into the ocean. And it, people matter, how we treat our customers and how we treat our employees. So people, planet, profit, to me, is like the amazing um, best practice. And what's interesting is bigger, social entrepreneurship is actually bigger outside the U.S. than in the U.S. Locally, we have a uh, company called the B Corp, and they certify for-profit companies as social entrepreneurs, and I think it's an amazing program. And one of the things that I subscribe to in both of my books, I have a chapter on social entrepreneurship, and I talk about what the B Corp does because they're so amazing. So if you think about companies like Tom's Shoes, Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream, Starbucks is not an official B Corp but they act like a B Corp the way they take care of their employees. And so it's just a way to do it. And I think that sometimes you hear the term greedy American capitalist pigs, and that's where maybe the greed factor became too big and we started doing unethical things or unsavory things for the almighty profit. So I think that's where we crossed the line. For the last seven years, I've uh, my field of research in academia has been ethics. And so ethics and character is really big to me. And I think social entrepreneurship kind of solves and addresses that issue as well. So I kind of went on, but I want to connect the dots between social entrepreneurship and capitalism and why both of them motivates me. And that's why I write about it in my books. So the second book, Why Black and Brown Entrepreneurs Fail, is just really a, a focus on a smaller group. But in a lot of ways, Denise, they're no different. Regardless of your color, entrepreneurship is a failure sport and it can beat you up. And that's why it must be your passion. If it's your passion, you can handle the punch in the gut or the punch in the mouth and keep going. If you're just there for the money and you get punched in the mouth, then guess what? You're probably going to quit. So it's really important that we persevere and we never quit. So we talk about failure, but really failure is just part of the path to success. 
Oh, listen, I agree with you. And I have to tell you, I thought I knew a lot about entrepreneurship because I am one. I've been one since I was, oh gosh, putting together Halloween costumes in my mom's garage when I was five years old and selling them to mm-hmm. the neighbors or selling them ideas. I might get a nickel, but it was a nickel and it was mine. You know, they were willing to pay and I was willing to accept the, the contribution to my allowance if I even, I don't right. even know if I had an allowance. But what you're talking about is I, I really never viewed it as a term, social entrepreneurship. I knew that people do it. I knew that, you know, companies who all of a sudden their customer service has gone straight down the drain. Everything is about how much more money can we get out of you? And I don't think they understand that people are watching and they're trying to find a way out. Let's cell phones, you know, your cell phone bill. Oh my gosh. There's an entire page mm-hmm. of drip, 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 drip. It's, frankly, it's stolen money. Yeah. It's, it's really just stolen money. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're looking to, you know, to go to pure talk from AT&T because you're tired of it. You know, we're, Mm-hmm. That's not social entrepreneurship, but I have always been aware of it. I just never knew that there was really a term or a way to describe it. So I'm really glad that we're talking about this. So what else? I mean, when did you say you, this kind of became something that you really just went, oh, kind of like I'm doing right now? Did you say it was seven or eight years ago? No, actually 2017. So uh, in 2017, we launched the Innovation Incubator uh, at Cal State University of Dominguez Hills down in Carson, where I teach. And my university president uh, wanted an incubator on campus for the business students, actually the entire campus and the surrounding community. And so our first uh, model was We Empower Entrepreneurs, and that was January 2017. I think in March or April 2017, I went in one week. I went to three events related to social entrepreneurship, and I had this epiphany. I said, well, if our incubators going to be different from established incubators at USC and UC Irvine, et cetera, we're going to put our stamp and put our flag on social entrepreneurship. So I was excited. I went to my executive board and said, hey, we're going to make a pivot. We're going to change directions just slightly, and we're now going to empower social entrepreneurs. And one of the first things, so Denise, don't feel bad. Here's a VP at the university telling me, well, Gary, everybody can't be nonprofit. I said, whoa, slow down. Social entrepreneurship is not about nonprofit. It includes that, but it really focuses on profit. It focuses on people and planet. And a guy named John Elkington back in 1994 actually coined the term, the triple bottom line, people, planet, profit. So this has been around a while. He actually wrote a 25-year update article in 2019 about where social entrepreneurship was, and he concluded that we still have a lot of work to do. And so that's really true because people like you saying, oh, I haven't heard of that, but now that I hear of it, wow, that's great. The millennials and now our Gen Z who are now into um, in the adult age of 20 and 21, they're altruistic. They're more altruistic than our generation ever was. And so they already understand well, can we do good at the same time while making money? And the answer is yes. So it used to be people would say, well, I'd like to have a social responsibility, but it's just too expensive to use good products that are biodegradable, and uh, it's too hard to really treat employees well. But contrary to that, the best companies have known that for a while. If you take care of your employees, guess what? Your employees are going to take care of your customers. So believe it or not, as good as Starbucks is, they spend more money on employee benefits than they do on marketing. And you would think otherwise because they're so well-known and they're so popular. But what Howard Schultz did, he made sure that he didn't want to go franchise. He wanted to have a chain where all the companies have professional managers, all the stores, and all the employees could have a stake in Starbucks. So he actually offered Starbucks employees for part-time stock options. That's literally unheard of. I had to get to the assistant VP level in banking before they offered me a stock option. And at that time, they even made an exception because normally stock options are only for VPs. So the point is, though, they take care of their employees. I was a branch manager in the mid-'80s, 
and there was a book called In Search of Excellence. And they made all the B of A branch managers read the book. And the conclusion was the best companies in America take care of their employees the best. And then a guy named Jim Collins wrote a new book in 2003 about good to great. And he focused on some of the best companies in America. And guess what? Those companies took care of their employees the best. And so it's almost so simple, you wonder why don't more people buy into it? Again, you go back to a Fortune 500, maybe they're set in their ways, they have their silos, they have all these ideas set up, and the human resource people can't get to the line manager and say, you know what, we've got to take care of our people because if we have high turnover, there is some hidden costs. So all the way down from Fortune 500 down to small business, we should think about social entrepreneurship. So what I want to do is work with startups and tell them about social entrepreneurship at the beginning where it's not a surprise. Will everyone become a social entrepreneurship entrepreneur? No. But if 70% can become social entrepreneurs, then I think the world is a lot better than if 0% were entrepreneurs. So oh, you exactly. you're a solo I am. Well, I'm a solopreneur. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's important. That, that fits because the bottom line is you're probably looking for financial independence, the freedom to do what you want to do when you want to do it and how you want to do it. And oh, the idea absolutely. Is that... You don't want me in your office. <laughs> Gareth, no, you, you do don't. not want me in your office. I don't play well with others. I run with scissors. And if you want coffee, you can get it your own damn self. You don't want me in your office. <laughs> I have to be left alone. <laughs> I'm telling you. Well, you don't have to worry about some guy calling you gal either. Then. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I don't care about that kind of stuff. I just, you know, people are people, and they're going to say what they want to say. If it's really offensive, I'll probably deck them mentally or verbally. I'm very good at, you know, verbal knockdowns. I'm very good at it. But, but the thing is, that to me, and I could be wrong, there's a difference between an entrepreneur when I think entrepreneurs, I think of people like, um, oh, geez, his name is Tony Hayes, I believe, Zappos. That's when I first became, oh, yeah. he died recently. That's when I first mm-hmm. became aware of social entrepreneurship, even though I didn't recognize it as such. And something you said a bit ago, you know, young, younger people want to work with companies that are very active in making the world a better place. Well, he was one of the very first I think that just said, this is the way we're going to do it. And, you know, he mm-hmm. died a horrible death. God bless him. But, you know, Zappos was just one of those companies that everybody was watching. And, you know, how did they mm-hmm. do this? I mean, I've read his book years ago, and I, and I was one of their first customers. I love Zappos. But then I mm. love shoot. You got to see my closet. It looks like Nordstrom's threw mm. up in there. But, it's mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. but the thing is, so I've always because I'm not a big, big company, I have a terrific team, but we're virtual. I've always just kind of recognized or marketed myself as a solopreneur rather than an entrepreneur. I'm probably a hybrid of both, to be honest. Well, I would say you probably are because you mentioned the word you have a team. So when I think you're a solo entrepreneur, I'm thinking you're by yourself totally, but oh, no, you no, think no. about someone who crossed the uh, Atlantic swimming or ran one of the, uh, did one of these 500-mile bikes, they have a team around them. They're not just doing it by themselves out there. And I think part of the idea, though, is that uh, if you want to scale, then you need a team of, like, a CMO, a chief marketing, a chief financial, a chief operating, a chief HR, maybe even a chief technology officer, because when you walk in and say, here's my team, us five, we want to do X, then X becomes very realistic. But if you say me, myself, and I, by yourself, what you can do on a scalable basis is very limited. But if that's not important to you, a scaling is not important, but having your own way and charting your own course is important, then you can be a sole entrepreneur because it still fits because you're independent and you're not working for a paycheck. And I think it comes down to understanding um, capitalism. It's really about working for a profit as opposed to a paycheck. And I can remember a time when I was in banking in my mid-30s, and the guy behind me was 20 years senior to me, and he was worried about answering the phone because he didn't want Regent calling him, telling him 
to come in because they have this early out package. And I'm thinking, wow, so I've been here 10 years. If I stay here another 20, now I'm in my mid-50s, and I'm worried about getting a phone call that says goodbye. We can find someone in their 30s and replace you for a lot less money. So that's really what the guy told me behind me. He said, hey, Gary, they want guys like you. They want young guys, inexpensive. And um, what about all the experience? So I just said, no way. But I want to talk about this Apple guy, Tony, because one of the things I saw in an interview that he did about a year ago, he made an interesting point. He said his business is really about customer service. Exactly. And so you mentioned going to his website. I bet you that it was a positive experience as a customer because that was oh, his big very, thing. He said, very much. And, and it doesn't matter whether you're in shoes or radio or education or doing widgets, if the customer experience is great, then guess what? You're going to be sustainable because people are going to come back to you. So we talk about what is a sustainable competitive advantage, and in a way it sounds very complicated, but in reality, if you can keep 80% of your customers over a long period of time, you're pretty sustainable. So if you can keep 80% of your listeners you are doing very well because to keep 100 is not realistic. People are going to relocate. They're going to die. They're going to change your interests. But if you can keep 80% of your customers, regardless of your industry, then you are on the road to success. Contrary, if you're keeping 20% of your customers, there's something very wrong. Your service, your pricing, your quality, your image, uh, the competition is better. There's something wrong. So it gets into, if you ever watched the Shark Tank, Mark Cuban, the uh, basketball guy who was a computer guy, he always asked, what's your culture? What's your cost of customer acquisition? And if it goes up over time, he'll say, you're dead to me or I'm out, because that means there's something wrong with your company. Marketing 101 teaches it's cheaper to keep an existing customer than to acquire a new customer. So over time, if you're doing things right, your customer acquisition cost is very low because instead of trying to bring in 100% new customers, you may want to bring in 20% to add to that 80% that you already have. Does that make sense? Listen, I've always known that. I mean, anybody with any kind of business at all, whether it's a lemonade stand or, you know, it's you have an island that you bring people to, and I'm thinking of, what is his name? Um, Richard Branson. He lives on an island. Um, yeah. You know, and he's an entrepreneur. I mean, I yes, guess when is. I compare myself to him, he is. When I compare myself to him, I just go, "Ooh, okay, never mind." But you know, he but, failed. You know, right? I Denise, know. You know, Mr. Branson failed. I do. He had and Virgin you, Coke. He did. I remember that. And you just gave me permission to grow up and be an entrepreneur. So if we did nothing today. I am elevating myself. So thank you for that. But listen, one of the things that that I wanted to, and, you know, we're talking a lot about, you know, customer service, customer, uh, customer experience is very different from a customer service. But what I'm hearing you say, honestly, and it keeps, you know, I have that little thought bubble over my head right now. And I think it's attitude. It's your attitude towards your clients, your consumers, the people who read your blog, the people who listen to your cast, whatever it is you're doing. If, you're, if your attitude is great and you can make people understand that you're really there to help them in one way or another, I think you're about 50% of the way. Yep, I would agree 100% because – it's all about being positive, and as a leader, you have to be positive. But I was a basketball coach for about 14 years, and eight of those years I coached at the college level. And one thing I learned about coaching athletes, before you discipline them, before you correct them, you got to show that you care. So you got to develop a rapport. So the old school mentality of uh, manage by duress and, uh, and uh, coaches want to intimidate their staff or their players and managers intimidate. Uh, professors intimidate, that really is out the door. Now you have to uh, kind of maybe tone it down a little bit, maybe be a little bit open, and sometimes even show some vulnerability. 
Whereas in the past, maybe that was a sign of weakness, but today it's a sign of strength that you can be so open that to admit to a failure or admit to a challenge or admit to a mistake because all of that makes you a little bit more human. And I think that's what people want to hear. I was at uh, B of A, my first uh, out of Loyola Marymount, my first real job was in banking. And I like to tell people I grew up learning character and learning the value of relationships. The old B of A, not the one that's down in North Carolina, but the one that was based in San Francisco, uh, was really into customer relationships. If we had a customer 10 years plus and they came in and asked us to do something or make an exception, we would do it. Same uh, request by someone who just came off the street that we didn't know them. We said, oh, sorry, we don't do that. Because we knew that our real value was in our customer relationship. And, again, it just goes back to are you going to talk to someone as if you're going to see them tomorrow or are you just going to be a one-night stand and you'll tell them anything? And I've always been the type, I want to see you tomorrow, I want to see you in five years, and be able to walk up and shake your hand and say, how you doing, as opposed to turn to turn and go in the other direction across the street because whatever I said or did in the past was not true, was not really ethical. So it really comes down to how you treat people and then be consistent. But I think if you have a relationship mentality that's based long term, then guess what? You're more likable, people want to be around you, and it just really lays a foundation for success. It does. And we have to, you know, add into that kind of studish there, empathy. If you don't possess yeah. empathy, you're right. not going to get people to pay much attention to you unless it's in a pretty negative way, which mm-hmm. is a shame because, I mean, we are in so many ways a terrific society. We're a great country. So we don't need to be nasty to one another. I just think that is absolutely unnecessary. Uh, you know, just as a for instance, social media, there's a lot of garbage, just nasty mm, yeah. stuff going on on social media. What people don't understand is if you're being real ugly on social media, they're going to track that back to your company one way or mm-hmm. another. It's going to reflect on your company. You may not mean it that way. You may think, oh, it's just me venting. Well, that's wrong. You know, you're going to just just stop. Just don't get nasty on social media. I don't. You know, there's there's just so many ways that we can just really harm our businesses. But you know what? We've we've got about thirty. We could talk all day. We did this the last time we were on the phone. Yes, you did. <laughs> and I I have another call. I got to go. <laughs> so, and I hated <laughs> to do it. But but what I want I wanted to kind of stay on track. So. We're talking today about black and brown entrepreneurs, and you talked, I mentioned it earlier, cultural differences that get in the way. What do you mean by that? Well, let's face it, um, in America, the gorilla in the room is racism. Um, It's been around. It's part of our fabric. It's part of our culture. And it's kind of come up with the COVID-19 and some of the social unrest unrest that's going on. So to say that racism doesn't exist in America would be disingenuous, but I think it really gets into how we are as individuals. And I don't want to become civil rights leader, but Martin Luther King made a great quote that he wants his children to be uh, judged by the content of their character as opposed to the color of their skin. Exactly. So ultimately, we do want to acknowledge that there are differences in races, but at the same time, it's really about character as an individual. I um, was an NCAA basketball coach at uh, Dominguez, and I took a class, and they talked about the difference between the melting pot versus a salad bowl. And I thought it was amazing because in the melting pot, in America it's called a melting pot, that when you go into a melting pot, you, you lose your identity. You all become one. When you go into a salad bowl, you're still mixed up. But lettuce stays lettuce, tomato stays tomatoes, and cucumbers stays cucumbers. So you keep your identity, but you're still mixed up to be a great thing. And I think it's important that we understand that we do want to be proud of our culture. We do want to be proud of who we are, but at the same time, we want to be able to assimilate without losing our identity. And so there are cultural differences, let's face it, but at the end of the day, it's about our character. And so I think we need to address that there are some differences, monetary differences, educational differences, 
family differences, et cetera, et cetera. But as entrepreneurs, we really have to kind of forget that and keep moving because I think if you want to have a business that is scalable and you want to make an impact, you probably want to make an impact not only just in the black or brown community, but in the total business community because at the end of the day, if it's only black and brown customers you have, then you're going to be very limited because of the population. But if you're inclusive and say, well, we want to help people, then I think that's a better thing. But at the same time, you're still proud of who you are and whatever your background was on an ethnic basis. So there are cultural differences. But then in cultural differences, we have to talk about self-doubt because in oh, our research. I'm so glad yeah. you said that because literally while you were talking, I was scribbling on uh, an index card because I keep them handy so I can keep notes while my guests are talking. And in mm-hmm. big letters, self-doubt. So you're reading my mind. Well, the question in the chapter is self-doubt holding you back. Because in our research, we found that it was. And it's interesting because self-doubt sometimes comes from parents, sometimes comes from siblings, sometimes comes from your own race, in addition to maybe the majority race. So the question is, what is, what is self-doubt and why is it there? And is it normal to have self-doubt? And the answer is yes, it is normal. Are we going to let it be enough to hold us back to tell us we can't do something or to stay in our lane and always work at a lower rung or work for somebody? And that's where we say, no, it's not. So self-doubt, again, it's there. You want to kind of flick it off your shoulder and say, you know what? I'm not going to let this hold me back. I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to be an entrepreneur and I want to chart my own course. And I'm searching for my own financial freedom. I don't want to work for someone the rest of my life. And when you get into management, you can work 60 or 70 hours a week, and you get the same salary. Why not be an entrepreneur work 60 or 70 hours a week, and now you work for a profit for your company and for yourself? And I think that's a totally different thing. So culture differences, self-doubt, yes, they're there. But, again, let's talk about being an entrepreneur And that's why the rest of my book gets into networking. We talk about social entrepreneurship. We talk about access to capital. We talk about things that are challenging to any entrepreneur. So we wanted to have a couple chapters that were very germane to being a black and brown. But then at the same time, we want to talk about the bigger totality of being an entrepreneur in general. So, yes, there are differences. We want to recognize that but we don't want to have a pity party. We don't want to have a let that stop us. We want to keep on going ahead and be proud of the differences and be proud that understand self-doubt may accept, impact some, but it's not going to stop me. Exactly. And, uh, you know, what I we had a, a hurricane recently. Well, we've had multiple hurricanes. <laughs> Two of them came knocking straight at my door. It's been an interesting wow. hurricane season. Yeah. But what I did, you know, I had three days where I had no power. So I, mm. you know, I've got, I've got your book, but I've got a, a an entire bookcase in my office that populated with my guests. I interview a lot of wow. authors and I'm always delighted to do that. And I started going through, I grabbed my flashlight, <laughs> I went in here because it's dark in here, and I started mm-hmm. stacking books. And for three days, I read, and I read, and I read. And one of the things, and your book was one of them, and one of the, the first chapters, chapter oh, wow. one, I was hooked. And it says, 54 Shades of Failure. And I went, oh, geez. <laughs> but, <laughs> okay, do I really want to read this book right now? i got no power. <laughs> it's, I'm worried about my freezer you just the things that go on through your head but the thing is you are right that you know imposter syndrome is a problem for all of us I don't care if you're black brown or green with chartreuse mm-hmm. stripes we mm-hmm. all have it so yeah. and flipping it off I love that I do in the south what we call a pishne when I start having really irritating thoughts that I'm doing this round robin say like, oh Denise you can't do that what are you thinking and you, you get stuck in that kind of really icky, you know, train of thought at Pishne is remember when somebody would come up behind you, my uncle used to do this, and he would flick me, flick my ear, flick my earlobe. And we call that a Pishne. And, mm. I, you know, I'll do it to myself. It's, you know, 
I'm not actually reaching over and flicking my earlobe, but, you know, I'll have this mental like, oh, no, you don't. You are not going down that road. And I think that mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, people who really want to do things their way and become a, a servant leader by helping other people, we're probably having those little name moments all the time. Like, oh, no, you don't. You are not. You're not going to wallow in that. So it right. was exactly. reading that, yeah, that chapters, you said that um, why black and brown entrepreneurs fail, this is a burning question that we'll address throughout this book. But first, here's what you told us. And to be exact, this is what 50 high school and college students shared with us. And you call that opinions of university and high school students. Some of these are just horrible. I mean, I was reading, I couldn't put the book down. I read the entire book during that hurricane, was Hurricane Delta, if anybody wow. wants to know. But, you know, some of these had me just going, oh, God. And some of them were like, okay, I get that. I've done that myself. And others had me going, okay, that just sucks that these kids think this. And that's why I put it in there because these are yeah. actual quotes. And some people say, well, it's, some were kind of said the same thing. I say, I know, but. I wanted people to hear it different ways because it does come out to the same at the end, but the way they said it, because this is someone speaking from their heart, unfiltered, and I wanted to put it there because I want to establish that, yes, it's out there, and that is a mentality, and maybe for some it's really hard to overcome, but, you know, sometimes stories, when they're relatable, when you read something, say, oh, I felt that, oh, I heard that, oh, I'm not going to let that, I think that is empowerment. And again, at the end of the day, this book is about empowering. I don't talk about it directly, but welfare is something that I'm not really a fan of. And I'd like to have the Folk Institute and black and brown entrepreneurs learn how to fish as opposed to give them fish. I really, really want to see third generation businesses as opposed to third-generation welfare recipients or third-generation college graduates, because I think at the end of the day, we can empower ourselves through education and through business and then not have to worry about handouts. The idea that the man, so-called man being the government, to pay us 800 or now this guy with the UBI thing, Andrew Yang, is talking about $1,000 a month, I don't see that as empowerment. I see that as dependency and I'd rather you keep your $1,000 unless I get it in the form of the investment into my business as opposed to, oh, money I'm looking for every month for doing nothing. Wow, well, how exciting can that be? So for me, not very exciting at all. I want to be educated, and I want to try to make my own path. And, again, entrepreneurship does that for us. So, you know, if we can get rid of this welfare mentality and turn towards capitalism, That'd be an amazing thing, not only for black and brown people, but for the United States in general, because, again, like I said earlier, entrepreneurship and small business is the backbone to our economy. We must have this. Absolutely. And listen, you are speaking to the choir on welfare. I live in the Deep South. I've seen a lot of it, and it's almost like there's no pride left. It just destroys Mm. people. And, and yeah. you know, we've four or five generations here, and it's like, oh, my goodness. It's just – it changes who people are. It's a terrible thing. Look, I'm all for hand, my hand out or hand up, rather, but if we're supporting you for generation after generation, there's something terribly wrong with your thinking. It's just not yeah, right. I think the kids with no parents or elderly maybe should have some kind of government subsidy or support. Sure, I have no problem with that, but not for generation after generation. My mother, Thelma, was really a strong woman, and she told me that, because welfare, it seemed like I remember in the 60s, all of a sudden welfare this, welfare that. My mother said, we're not giving anybody's handouts. No government's giving us anything. We're going to work hard. If we can't get it based on work, we don't need it. We're not going to sit around waiting on any check to come and control us. So I never thought about welfare or being a uh, option for me personally. My The message my mother gave me was, you're going to college. So the question was, what college? It wasn't if I was going to college. The only question was, what college would I go to? 
And then by going to college, I get a chance to get educated. And then I really learn about entrepreneurship. I'm a freshman at Azusa Pacific over in the San Gabriel Valley in Los Angeles County, and I heard the word entrepreneur. I said, wow, that's a cool word. And it was intro to business, and the professor was talking about, oh, it's a French term, and it means business. And I said, wow. And I just really, it was an amazing word, and it's, you know, when you try to spell it, it gets a little tricky sometimes. But it really just means that you're in business. And nowadays, there is a difference between small business and entrepreneurship. For some people, entrepreneurship is a little more sexy because you mentioned you got the solopreneurs and you got the mompreneurs and the micropreneurs and all kinds, but they all kind of relate to the same thing of owning your own business. And I think that on the business level, part of the American dream is not only working hard, but working hard to have your own business and be able to maybe chart your own course on an economic level. And the individual people who live in Beverly Hills and our pals, Birdies, and your rich affluent areas, if they're not some high-priced entertainer or doctor or lawyer, probably business owners. And that was another very wake-up call for me working in Beverly Hills and looking at my clients who are just regular, everyday people, but they were entrepreneurs. Again, it goes back to the opportunity of not having a limit of how much you can make. If you do well, if you do customer service, if you take care of your employees, then you could have a very fine um, lifestyle. You really can. And look, everybody I know just about is an entrepreneur at some level. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Yeah. I mean, those, those are just the people I gravitate to. I don't know why, probably because, you know, we're all in that same pond of, you know, how can we do better? How can we be better? How can we help other people? How can we live the Mm -hmm. lifestyle that we are meant to live? I mean, there's so many questions that we ask ourselves and then we go do what we need to do to make these things happen. So uh, entrepreneurship to me is, it's a frame of mind. It's almost, I'm not going to say religion. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm grasping for it, but it's a, it's who you are. It's who you are. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's you know, I would say, Denise, on the advice level, I would say that entrepreneurship is great, but do it because it's your passion. Don't do it because you want to make a lot of money or get rich quick because then you're going for the wrong reason. And really, that's not enough. If you uh, have a circle of people you want to work with you and be part of your team and share your vision, yeah, well, let's go make a lot of money. Well, that's not enough. Let's go make a difference. Let's go improve something. Let's disrupt something. Let's make something better. Those are the kind of things that people want to rally behind and do a, and make an impact. So it has to be your passion. So that's my advice. If you're going to do your own business, it's more than an ocean. It's a journey. And it should be your passion because if it's your passion, working 80 hours a week or getting punched in the mouth and getting up or being told no or having a failure, you're just resilient. It's like a speed bump. Instead of stopping, you slow down. You might have to recalculate, but you just hang in there. But it has to be your passion. So that would be the best advice I'd give to your listeners is entrepreneurship is great, but make sure it's your passion. And some people say, well, how do you know it's your passion? Or how do I know what my passion is? Normally, it's something that you love and enjoy so much, you'll do it for free. And then the challenge becomes, how can we monetize this? So obviously, you're a people person. I can hear it in your voice. You like to talk to people. But you're all independent, so you use the media to make a lot of friends. Well, that's your nature. This is your passion. You don't have to make yourself like people. I would imagine you're a people person all day long, not just when you're on the radio. And the fact that you have this conversation and you can relate to people and you want to spread good news and you want to be on the airwaves talking about what you're doing and talking to uh, authors about what they're doing, that's just your nature. So I believe that you're following your passion and you're probably having fun because they say when you're following your passion, you never work a day in your life. True. And that is very It's very true. I don't know if it was Dolly Parton who said that, but somebody said it. And you know what's really interesting, and I'm I'm really fascinated that you're kind of describing me the way you just did, because I am a card-carrying introvert. 
truly. Yeah. Doesn't I I know. I am absolutely 100% committed introvert, but I'm not shy. And I really, not at all, not even close to being shy, which people always say, oh, you must be shy. Nope. And I don't have any filters either, which is really a good reason why to not be in public very often. But the thing is. I like that about you, actually. (laughs) No filters. My mom used to say. I like that. uh, my mom used to call me an educated smart ass. She was rude. <laughs> she was right. <laughs> but, but the thing is, yeah, well, yeah, she didn't have any blinders where we were concerned. But the thing is, I enjoy people. I love talking with people. I just can't be around crowds for more than 59 and three quarter minutes. That's it. I've timed myself. I've got to go now because it's really, mm. but you know, I don't hate people. I don't dislike people, although children bother me frequently but (laughs) very frequently it's like they're little sociopaths that have just been cut out into the world but the thing is even being a highly committed introvert I get to meet you know but in terms of this radio you know this radio show I get to meet amazing people people who impact Mm. me in ways that I can't even really explain very gracefully you know, all I can mm-hmm. do is say thank you, thank you, thank you. But I mean, I get to meet you. I met you through Devin Blaine. I, you know, there's this whole stream of people that I get to meet and learn from and become friends with and follow, and we follow each other. It's it's a tremendous process for somebody like me who doesn't really want to be out and about much. Does that make you? Well, any I tell sense? you, the place, it makes a lot of sense. So I, I just wanted to bring up the Polk Institute Foundation and what we're trying to do. We need help from people like you, Denise, that know a lot of people to help spread our word because what we want to try to do with the Polk Institute is offer a tuition-free master-level education in social entrepreneurship. And we're going to ask government, we're going to ask uh, private donors, we're going to ask banks and corporations to fund scholarships while we can teach this and do it the right way and give them 40 weeks of education and social entrepreneurship and then put them in a accelerator as a second phase for six months to launch their business that they write about in the 40 weeks of the education. And then the third phase is where we'll have access to capital. But then we don't stop there because once they graduate from us, will form a CEO group because you're a solopreneur. You probably realize that being the top person, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you need to talk to another CEO, a like-minded person about your problems that you can't share with your team because with your team, you always have to be up and your cup has to be half full. So we understand that it's a long journey as an entrepreneur. And the Polk Institute, what we want to do, we're trying to launch 1,000 social entrepreneurships over the next 10 years. And that's going to take a just, lot of work. It will. Just tell me what you need. You know I'm behind you. What I'm thinking is, and I mentioned Devin Blaine earlier, what I'm thinking is just off the record, you and she and I should get on the phone and do some, you know, how can we help? You know, find out Let's what we can do. Okay. Poor Devin. She doesn't realize I just broke her in to something, but she's terrific. She will help. But definitely, let's all get on the phone and see how I can help, how, how I can find other people in my circle of my massive circle of friends who can help. So, yeah, well, I just wanted to make that offer. So what I, yeah, I appreciate that. Let's do that because the key date is that we're going to have our formal hard launch on January 15th. 2021, which happens to be Martin Luther King's real birthday. Right. I noticed that. Day. Yep, I noticed that. And then we're going to have our first class. It's going to be virtual, so we can have students from anywhere in the country. Uh, we're going to start February 1st, intentional, because that's uh, the first day of Black History Month. And so we, uh, the Polk Institute, what we're going to do, we're going to target black and brown founders, but we're not going to be exclusive. So my ideal class will have 25 uh, people in our first cohort class. And in that class, I'd like to see 10 black founders, 10 brown founders, and five non-black or brown founders. And I'd like to have that diversity. And that's just our first class. Then our second class will be in 2022. And we see us having three different cohort classes 
with 25 founders in each. And what we're really trying to do is give this master-level social entrepreneurship education because I don't know if you know this, Denise, but we actually have 15 universities in the U.S. that offer tuition-free right now. And five of them are military academies, starting with West Point and the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy, and they are tuition-free. Who pays for that? The federal government. Why? Because they're turning out military leaders. The oh. Polk Institute wants to offer tuition-free to turn out business leaders that are buying into social entrepreneurship. And we think that if we can do that, we can teach them how to fish, we can get rid of this welfare mentality and do what we call welfare withdrawals, where we turn to capitalism instead. So we need a lot of help. We're trying to raise $100 million, believe it or not, so we can have an endowment because we are a nonprofit, and so we want to live on our endowment income, and then we can be a very sustainable organization that's going to last over the years. And so we have some very ambitious goals. I'd love to talk to you and get there and come up with a strategy because this is not only just going to be a U.S. impact. We think we're going to have a global impact because we know social entrepreneurship, that people want to know more about it in South America, in Mexico, in Europe. And so we are doing a lot of things. I'm up at 4, 5, 4.30, 5 o'clock every morning. Can't wait to get busy working on the Polk Institute. In addition to my teaching duties at Cal State Dominguez Hills and then being an advisor with the SBA. So I'm really having a ball, but I'm busy. But the Polk Institute, great to do in two days on the 16th. And then I'll have a lot of time to focus on the Polk Institute and get in our launch done on January 15th. Can I make one All last right. point? I know we're probably out of time. No, no, no. Uh, We've got I eight am minutes. Here. So I am on the board of directors with an organization in Compton, California, called the Compton Youth Build, and I'm the uh, treasurer. I just joined them about three months ago, and I decided that I was going to give half of my book sales for the first year of Why Black and Brown Entrepreneurs Fail. I'm going to donate that to the Compton Youth Build. That'd be my way of giving back further to the community because the Compton Youth Build focuses on kids, well, not kids, I got to say young adults, 16 to 29. And a lot of them have lost their way there in the foster system, the continuation school, and the Compton Youth Build, we're trying to empower these kids that are in the Compton area. And we also have a second office in Whittier with the same mission, though, we're trying to help young people better themselves, and it's really important. So my financial offer then is people buy my book, they know that 50% of those proceeds will go directly to the Compton Youth Build and help build that program as well. So I want to plug that. Oh, thank you. Listen, I'm listening very carefully to you, and just, and I mean, you've, you've been excited the, the whole time you've been here. But just this last couple of minutes, your excitement level went way up. Did you notice that when you're talking about you're awake at 4.35 o'clock? You can call me, by the way. I'm awake, too. <laughs> I, I'm, <laughs> I'm one of those people. I wake up and go, all right, <laughs> what am I going to do today? You know, my mother used to say that I would wake up and the devil would say, oh, crap, she's awake. That's not exactly <laughs> true. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, I'm like you, you know, when I wake up, I'm excited. First of all, I'm grateful that I woke up. Who isn't? And then right. I get to well, exactly. look at all seriously, at all the different things that I've got going on, the people I get to meet, you know, the the books I want to write, the books I want to read and there's never enough time. There never is, but it doesn't matter. You know, I'll just keep on going, but I love the way all of a sudden I mean, your voice went up at you know about half an octave you got you started speaking a little bit faster you're very excited about what you're doing and I'll tell you right now on the radio I'll do whatever I can to help well that's great because I think we're doing it for the right reasons I think we're doing it for the right time I think the Polk Institute Foundation and the idea of raising 100 million dollars if we had had this conversation one or two years ago before COVID-19 probably would not have been realistic but COVID-19 has brought some good things because the Zoom technology, now we can teach worldwide, sitting in one location. Uh, that has helped a lot. 
you have open source learning, you have technology, and I have 10 people on my founding team that were paying nobody, but they're volunteering their sweat equity because they believe in what the Folk Institute is about and what we're the difference that we're going to make. And now I'm talking to my old banker friends and I'm talking to individual donors because in some circles, $100 million is a lot of money, and in other circles, it's not that much. And I find that people really want to help, and we've set up a system that we believe is going to be sustainable. And, again, imagine a 1,000 new businesses launched over the next 10 years, and 70% of those CEOs are black and brown that believe in social entrepreneurship and the impact that they can make. And if they hired 10 employees, and if they had sales of not just 500000 or a million dollars, but five or $10 million, $20 million in annual sales. And those are the kinds of businesses that we're looking for. There's something called a innovation-driven enterprise, an IDE. And a guy named Bill Arlett wrote a book called Discipline Entrepreneurship, 24 Steps, and he coins the idea of an innovation-driven enterprise. And it's interesting because the book is about marketing, but Bill Arlett is the MIT director of entrepreneurship. So you would think a guy from MIT would be all tech, but he was about marketing, and his book is brilliant, and he talks about what an innovation-driven enterprise is and how it's different from a small business. But an example would be Tesla, uh, Amazon, Facebook, a company that makes an impact that's bigger than just in one city or one region, but actually maybe an entire state or the nation. And so the Polk Institute, we're an innovation-driven enterprise. All our education will be virtual, and we're taking applications right now. We already have uh, three people signed up to be in our first cohort class, and by January 15th, we're going to have 25. And we're excited about the opportunity to teach them the right things about business because we're going to have, instead of Ph.D. types, we're going to have practitioners teaching the class, maybe a Denise. Griffiths, who teaches communication and PR I would love to. and the value of that. And so we want to have people like you teach entrepreneurs because your message is more real life and every day than maybe some concept or some theory written by some PhD, if you know what I mean. No disrespect to PhDs, but no. we're talking about practitioners. Right, right. And one of the things that I find so important about people that I follow, people that I listen to, people that I deeply admire, is that it's their ethics, it's their personality, it's their attitude, it's their absolute willingness to become a better person so they can help other people be better people. And I know that sounds a little bit simplistic, but if we're not good people and we're trying to corner some kind of a market, well, let's not talk politics. But anyway, <laughs> you know where I'm going with that. But, you know, whatever you, you need to do, just let me know. And, you know, we're 90 seconds. I told you this is the quickest 90, 60 minutes in the, the Internet. Listen, I want you to come back, if you would, probably after you go to. ahead and you get this, you know, this um, launched. But we also didn't, you know, talk about access to capital, not realizing they need to, you know, establish a a network. That's important, not knowing their why. And we almost talked about it. You've spoke about it a bit, not viewing entrepreneurship as a team sport, which it very definitely is. Listen, as as an introvert and an A-type personality, when I started my company, I did it all myself. To this day, I can still... You know, when I ask my team, and I have a terrific team, when I Mm. ask any one of them to do anything, I know what I'm asking for because there's not a one of them that I can't already do the work they're doing. But I got smart down the road, and I started hiring people that are better at something than I am. So now, uh, oh, it took a while. It really did. But once I started, Mm. you know, finding specialists because, you know, I'm a web developer. I do social media. I'm a social media maven. I do a lot, and I need people who know what the heck they're doing. So, 
once I got smart and started finding people who were better at one particular thing than I was, but I still could ask them to do something and then say, okay, this is the way I've always done it. What are your ideas? Life got a whole lot easier for me. So entrepreneurship is very definitely a team sport. We want to talk about that. But before we go, I want you to tell people where they can find you. And definitely I need you to come back in the new year after we've talked you and me and Devin, bless her heart. She's probably listening to this going, I'm going to kill her. (laughs) But you never know. (laughs) I'll get that girl. Devin is a great, you know, Devin is a great person. And so far, Everybody she's introducing to have been great people as well. To reach me, uh, there's a couple ways. Uh, my website for the uh, Polk Institute is polk-ise.com. Polk-ise.com. Uh, probably an easy email to remember would be gpolk at g at, at uh, gmail. No, I'm sorry, profpolk. Profolk at gmail.com is another way to reach me. You mentioned uh, coming back. I'd love to come back because uh, next year, February, we're going to start the third book of my trilogy, Why Women Entrepreneurs Fail to Win. And um, I have uh, two female entrepreneurs on my team, and our first chapter will be Access to Capital because we already know women are the leading group of new entrepreneurs. And access to capital turns out to be one of their big hurdles. So when you talk about, well, what's the difference between black and brown entrepreneurs, et cetera, well, the difference with women entrepreneurs sometimes is what's going on. Women can be very pragmatic. Sometimes they limit themselves. I've heard the imposter thing you mentioned earlier. Women have that as well. But one of the things, access to capital. And so one of my colleagues at, Dominguez Hill, Jennifer Brobman right now is doing research on women and access to capital. We don't have enough women who are angel investors. We don't have enough women who are venture capitalists. And what happens a lot of times, people look like you give money to you. So if it's men, they're probably giving money to men, and we need to have more access to capital women. So our third book of the trilogy will be Why Women Entrepreneurs Fail, In Chapter 1, we're going to leave that off with access to capital because that will be the big gorilla in the room because we think if we can give women more access to capital, now women don't have to worry about the old boys' school and the glass ceiling because they know they're not going to never be an old boy, but they can start their own business and then have their financial freedom as well. So, again, another book, the third, is going to be empowering, so we get a chance to talk about that as well. So, I'd love to come back. Um, March is Women History Month, and maybe that'd be a good time for me to come back and we can talk about the third book or come back in February, Black History Month. So maybe I'll come back more than once if I'm welcome. <laughs> it is, it's been known to happen. And I'm so glad that you brought up angel investors. I actually, and I had to scribble this down, I had to move a cat butt off my, my little card here, but you ought to see the look on his face. <laughs> Look at him going, what? <laughs> that, that's my death. <laughs> yeah, well, it really is. But I have, in, I have interviewed over time several female angel investors. I'm going to go back through my list of, of uh, interviewees and start making some introductions. First, I'll, you know, I'll get permission that from them to great. do so, but I will talk with them and see if they're interested in speaking with you. You never know. Can't hurt to ask, right? You never know. Right. Well, Gary, exactly. thank you for being here with me. It's been fascinating. I always love chatting with you. And I thank, thank you, you for all of the wonderful tips and the advice and, and honestly, the just, I don't know, the heartfelt conversation that you have shared with our audience. So before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes and anywhere else you consume your business cast podcast. I found out not too long ago that you can also hear your partner in Success Radio on Amazon Prime. There's a podcast under music. There's a, a podcast link there, and I accidentally found myself oh, wow. there. It was it was shocking. I don't know how it happened. I didn't do it, but it's there. So just look for us anywhere. So look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Gary, thank you so much, and I look forward to speaking with you, you again very soon. 
get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.